has begun his role as our new youth pastor. He's, he's doing a great job, and we're thankful for him and just looking for God to use him to minister and build up our young people. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 9. And if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you, and our ushers are coming now. We have extra Bibles, and you're welcome to keep one of these Bibles. Just raise your hand if you just want to borrow it, but we'd love to have you take one if you don't have one. We want you to learn how to read the Bible. I didn't grow up in a church where we read from the Bible, so this was kind of new for me, and I hope that you will learn to just be open and say, hey, if this is God's word, what does it have to say, and how does it affect my life? By the way, just a background, this is not our new look. You know, we, some people are wondering, we want to have sort of an urban ghetto look, you know, so kind of make you feel, but actually, we're just waiting. There's some wood that we've been waiting, so I don't know, it must be some imported wood. I, I was going to go cut some trees down. But that, it's not like we don't have drywall. I apologize for that. And, um, but it will be in, hopefully, within a few weeks. Anyway, if you're with us, we're trying to, to um, teach you also how to read through the Bible. You can read the Bible on your own. It's not like only pastors or spiritual gurus that can explain the Bible to you. Every Christian has the Spirit, and God wants us to read His Word and grow. It, it feeds our souls. Man can't live by bread alone. But the Holy Spirit teaches us. And so we always want to pray before we read the Word. And I want, to, I want you to join me as we pray as well for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, particularly those Christians from Syria who have been um, captured by ISIS. You know, this is going on all the time, and we need to remember, Scripture says, remember those in prison as though in prison with them, because it would be very easy for them to simply renounce, renounce their faith. Right now, just say, hey, I don't, I don't, I'm not a Christian, I, I'm a Muslim, or I want to be a Muslim. But I want you to think about, if you were in their shoes, think of the the predicament that you're in. Jesus Christ said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. So Jesus told us to prepare ahead of time. He said, don't fear them that can kill the body, but fear God who can kill your body and put your soul in hell. So let's pray for them that they might persevere, that God's grace would minister to them and that they might stand strong in faith. Let's pray for their release, but even if they're not released, let's pray that they will... As Revelation 12 says, overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and love not their lives unto death. Because for them, if they were to die, it would be simply a graduation into glory, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And it's sobering for us to think about, what if that came to us? And so let's empathize and have compassion as we pray for God to protect and deliver them. Think of all their loved ones who are waiting in fear and, and, and pleading with the Lord for mercy. So join me, please. Father, we pray now for not only these 150-so Christians that are, that are in the forefront of the news. We pray, God, for their release. We pray for your judgment on wicked men. We pray for you to protect them. We pray for them to be delivered from evil men, as Paul taught us. But, Lord, we pray also for their perseverance. We pray that the power of the Holy Spirit will fall so deeply upon them that they will gladly confess Christ, that they will joyfully renounce everything for the sake of knowing Jesus. And Lord, if they are called to leave this world, Father, may they do that with great power. And may those who witness it, Lord, Satan thinks he's destroying the church. He doesn't realize he's simply developing and advancing the gospel. So use your word, Lord, in their lives. And now as we study through Genesis, use it in our lives we thank you that the Spirit is in our midst when we gather in Jesus' name, that he's going to use your word 
to build us up, to bring sinners to faith, and to encourage and equip us to do your work. So Lord, we want all to hear from you. Me too. We want to sit at the feet of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We've been going through Genesis. We said it has four sections. We've called the title of the series, Faith of Our Fathers. The book of Genesis begins with the creation story. It gives us an understanding of where we came from and God's blessing on humanity as we're made in his image. But then came the fall, Adam and Eve, original sin, and the consequences of damnation. We're all born condemned, but also corruption, that we all have Adam's sinful nature now, and, and only the gospel can rescue us from that. But having experienced the fall, we're in the middle of 4 through 11, where we're now seeing the corruption that spread. And we saw Cain and Abel, then we saw the tragedy of the flood last week. But this morning we're in Genesis chapter 9 as we see the end of this corruption. And then we move to chapter 12 where we see the call of a nation for redemption. So today we're going to go through chapter 9. And I'd like you to just think big picture here. They get off the ark. They're sort of getting a fresh start. And there's three things in this chapter. We first have a commissioning. Then we have a covenant. And then God pronounces a curse. So the first seven verses are a commissioning or perhaps a recommissioning, because God's going to say something similar to what he said to Adam. So look with me in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now the idea of blessing in Genesis is a big deal. It is a good thing to be blessed by God. And God delights to bless people. But we're also going to learn that God can pronounce curses. And so we want to learn what, what, what posture do I need to have to receive God's blessing in my life. And so God commissions him almost exactly what he told Adam, be fruitful and fill the earth. But now God's going to do something a little different. When he first put Adam on the earth, he said, fill the earth. And then he said, here's what you're going to eat. You're going to be a vegan. You're going to only eat from the green plants. But now God, and I think for a reason that I'll explain, is going to expand his diet. We're going to learn where Outback Steakhouse came from. God's going to now, now allow mankind to eat meat. Adam's going to have his first hamburger. But what I want you to think about is, there's a, I think there's a reason here, there's a picture, because it revolves around blood. Plants don't have blood, but flesh has blood. And so look with me in verse 2. God says, the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. So prior to this, I think all the animals would just walk right up to, to Noah. There's no fear of animals. That's why it was so easy to get them on the ark. But it's almost like God's cutting them some slack here. He's gone, since you're going to be eaten by these people, I'm going to put a natural fear in you to stay away from them. Now, I know there's exception. Your little squirrel comes up to you and so forth. But there's a natural fear of humanity in animals. God says in verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, imagine. That's like, wait, how do you do that? Do you just pick it? You know, does he start planting chickens? I mean, this is going to be weird, right? And then this whole idea, and it's really fascinating to think about that fleshly creation of God has blood in it, right? Now, this was not like a second thought from God. When he created us and animals, 
He created us with these little tubes and this red stuff going through us called blood. And, and there was a reason for that. He didn't have to. He could have just made us clay creatures like Play-Doh. But there's blood inside of us because blood was going to have a great significance in the Bible. Look with me in verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And so we're seeing a great connection here between life and blood. So verse 5, surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Remember, the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. So it was always God's purpose to redeem us from our sins through the sacrifice of Christ. So God, the just judge, had determined that the penalty for sin was death. That the wages of sin, the soul that sins, it shall die. The consequences for disobeying God are death. And death is more than just expiring from this world. It's an eternal separation from God. So God created human beings and animals with blood inside of them, which would, in essence, be a symbol and 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 be uniquely tied to their life because when a person or an animal pours out its blood, it's pouring out its life. So when God says, don't eat the blood, it's because blood is, is, is in essence the symbol of life. In fact, cultures back then believed that blood was, you know, kind of like people will drink anything if you tell them it'll make them healthy. And so they would drink blood, not the Jews. Well, the Jew, they weren't even Jews at this point. But God's going, no, I want you to, to recognize the sacredness of blood. That's why sometimes we, we misunderstand. When the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus, it's not as though Jesus could have just pricked his finger and gone, here, one drop of blood, and that's, that's more powerful than the scrubbing Clorox, and it'll scrub away your sins. When Jesus died on the cross and he poured out his blood, it was pouring out his life. So it couldn't have been one or the other. They, they couldn't have hanged Christ so that he just died but they couldn't just prick Christ's finger. The Bible says in the book of Leviticus, as God continued to unfold this idea of blood, he said in Leviticus, I want you to sacrifice animals, and the life of the flesh is in its blood, and I've given you the blood to put it on the altar to make an atonement or a covering for your souls. And so as we, as we move forward to the New Testament, when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was hung up on the cross, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so we're, we're starting to get this imagery that, that blood is significant. But when we sing in, the, in, in our worship time, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. Don't think that, you know, that the hemoglobin was Jesus type A. Don't think little drops of blood. Think pouring out of his life through the shedding of blood. So now God's going to show us the dignity of human life. Because he's going to institute a new way that the world will conduct themselves. God is going to institute human government. That's important for us as Christians to realize this. God instituted marriage. Man didn't make that up. And God instituted government. Man didn't come up with the idea of government. It was God's idea. And it was very narrow and very specific. The original purpose of government that we're going to read here was very simple, to punish evil and praise those who do good, good and, and do what's right. So notice verse 6. Remember, the reason he destroyed them the first time is there was so much violence. 
and there was no recourse. You know, somebody's killing your sister. What do you do? You call 911? There was no 911. There was no government. There were no police. There was no protection. So look at verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now, what we're seeing here is that God is beginning in principle to institute separating a group of people who will be charged with protecting people who are doing right and punishing people who will do wrong. Okay, So this is going to unfold throughout history that, that cultures have government. Now, now, we look at our government and we go, was it supposed to be for school and for social welfare and for health insurance and so forth? No, not in its origin. It was simply to punish evil. This was a mercy of God that he created human government and he created capital punishment, not just to punish evil, but to protect. See, the idea was, if a person knows, if I take someone's life, my life's going to be taken, I'm going to be restrained from doing that. But I want you to notice why God institutes government and capital punishment. Verse 6 says this, For in the image of God, he made man. So it's one thing to shoot Bambi to have dinner. And I realize some of you have different, you know, conscience or, you know, that kind of makes you squeamish. But it's a very different thing to take a human life. Because what God says is, he says, when you take a human life, you kill a human you have assaulted and affronted me because that's a little microcosm. That's a statue of me. That's the image of God. I put him there to reflect my image. So for you to take his life is to deliberately rebel and assault and offend me. And so it kind of gives us a worldview that says, hey, human life matters to God. And it matters to God more than animal life. And it ought to spill out into our view of abortion and other things and we're going to talk about capital punishment and, well, wait, I thought Christians are supposed to be merciful and I thought Jesus called off capital punishment when he, when he didn't stone the woman in adultery. But let's just see in principle that at this commission, God is the one who institutes government. But notice in verse 7, he then reminds him again, be fruitful and multiply. Here's your commission. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Now the word populate here is an interesting word. It literally means to swarm, team, fill it. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 1 when it says the, 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 the Jews just multiplied in Egypt. Now, again, as a Christian, you and I need to have a Christian worldview. Much of the way that we think is often informed by what our culture tells us. So we're walking in the grocery store, we see a woman with kids everywhere, and we go, are they all yours? Right? And she's like, well, yeah. And we're like, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, they do have birth control, right? And so what happens is, is we adopt these worldly systems that say, you know, there's not enough room on this earth. The Chinese have it right, you know, one or two at the most. I want you to understand something, that to have a lot of kids is blessed and biblical, okay? Now, let me be balanced here. What I'm not saying is if you don't have a lot of kids, you're a bad Christian, or if your conscience and your view of birth control is different for somebody, that's fine. But, but what I want to say here is, let's never fall into that worldly mentality that says, what's wrong with those people for having all those kids? Don't let me hear you say that, because I'll, I'll, I'll debate that with you. I'll ask you to show me from the Bible where having a lot of kids is a bad idea. Oh, we can't afford them. Really? 
The Bible says children are a gift from the Lord, and the fruit of the room is his reward. And my God shall supply all your needs. If you can't afford it means you can't take them to Disneyland every year, right? Well, I never heard of a child dying from that. <laughs> so, so let's just have a, a biblical understanding that it's not a bad thing to have a bunch of kids and that this is something that we should encourage, not discourage. But we also need to understand that some people want to have more kids. They weren't able. And so we want to be balanced, all right? Verse 8. <coughs> So that's the commissioning or the recommissioning. Now we see the covenant. This is going to be the first covenant God ever makes. Verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. I want you to think about this. This begins in principle a habit of God in the Bible of making covenants with individuals and people groups, okay? So the Noahic covenant is the first covenant. The next one that's clearly referred to in Scripture, some will see a covenant with, with Adam, which is, is referred to in, in one of the minor prophets, but clear covenant here. Then we've got the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Then we've got the covenant that God makes in Exodus 19 with the Jewish race. We call that the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. And that's the only covenant that God says is going to stop and wear out. And then we have the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David that one of his descendants will, will reign forever. And then ultimately, Jeremiah predicts in Jeremiah 31, in the last days, God will make a new covenant. And we just talked about that. Jesus said this cup is a symbol of the new covenant, or, or, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So... What we want to do is begin to understand, what does the Bible mean by a covenant? Well, a covenant is a contract. It's an agreement with stipulations. And sometimes God will make bilateral covenants that says, if you do this, I'll do that. And sometimes they're unilateral. He just makes a promise. And some of God's covenants are with everybody. And some of them are with limited people who are, who are called to partake of them. This one's with, not only with all of humanity, this is even with your pets. God makes a covenant with all of human beings and animals. He says, this is my covenant. Verse 10. All that comes out of the ark, every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood. Neither shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. Now the point God's making here is, I know that the earth is going to get ugly again. So we ought not to be surprised that he flooded the earth. We ought to be surprised that he doesn't keep flooding the earth. So this is actually a covenant of patience and restraint. And then one of the things we find in the Bible is that when God makes covenants, he often confirms them with some sort of a visible sign to remind us. So when he makes the covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm going to form a nation from you, and this is the sign. Circumcise your children. When he makes a covenant with Moses, he says, this is my law, and the Sabbath will be a sign. And then when Jesus makes the new covenant, he gives us a cup and bread to remind us. Well, God's going to give us a sign of this first covenant, verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. Which, by the way, this really struck me. 
I, I read one commentary, he said, clearly there were always clouds. And I go, really? Clearly? Far as I know, it never rained prior to Noah's time. So I'm not sure there were clouds before that. So, so, so maybe God's even saying this. Now we're going to have clouds, but in those clouds, there's going to be rainbows at times. He says, and that will be a sign for a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. What I want you to see here is that so much of the way we view life is formed by culture. You see, we live in a world that is upside down. When the Bible tells us don't be conformed to this world, when the Bible tells us not to love the world, what, what we're talking about is a worldview, it's a system, it's the way that people view life. And the world system, the way that people view life is you leave God out. See, sometimes we, we think worldliness is just people who take drugs. Worldliness is when you leave God out of your life. And, and we need to learn as Christians to grow in our discernment, to look at life the way God looks at life. And a classic example is something as simple as watching the weather. When you watch the weather report on the news, you are watching a worldly presentation of the weather because they're leaving God out. Now, they, they, they can't seem to stay away from the idea to personify something doing it, so at best they might say, Mother Nature is really... Well, that's not a biblical worldview. So when a rainbow appears in the sky, we're taught by the world and science to go, let's view that from a science standpoint solely, you know, that the prism and the refractory of light and the mist of the water and so forth. Yeah, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But see beyond that and say, that rainbow's there because God put it there. And that rainbow is a reminder of God's restraint with sinful and rebellious man. And these are the things that we need to inculcate in our children very naturally to say, hey, not just, oh, didn't Mother Nature make a pretty sunset, but that look at the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Remember when, when my daughter was, one of my daughters, we were riding along when she was little, she said, Dad, look how Jesus painted the sky. Yeah, we want, to, and we want them to start to have a worldview that's different from pagans who leave God out. So the next time you see a rainbow, praise you, Jesus. Now, one side note, a number of commentaries have suggested that the bow here was actually a symbol of, of the weapon, a bow, which, which certainly was in use by now. And that when a bow is, is standing vertically, it's because it's, it's, it's a time of war. But when a bow was hung up on the wall, it was a symbol of peace. And <clears throat> different commentaries go, yeah, clearly God's showing, hey, I'm at peace. I'm not going to judge you again with a flood. That's why I put a bow. Other commentaries say that's ridiculous. But these are the type of things as we're learning to read the Bible to go, well, okay, let me consider that. But the Bible doesn't clearly say, oh, it's a bow hanging sideways. So, but it is interesting to think about the rainbow's a reminder of God's covenant. Now, lastly, you would think with a fresh start, a new commission, a wonderful covenant, that things would go great. But this chapter ends with a curse because remember, we're in the section of Genesis where we see the spread of corruption. So look with me in 18 through 29. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, when people say, are we related? We're all related. And we're all related not just from Adam. We're all related from Noah. So I can save you a lot of money on these genealogies. I'll, just, I'll trace you back. It, it's that Noah, okay? But what we're going to find here is that with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, these three sons of Noah became sort of the, the founding fathers and the progenitors of the different races. Okay, there's an explanation for why we have Caucasians and Mongoloid race and so forth. Because God had set apart these three brothers to then be the founding fathers of the races. But interestingly, twice in this section, when, when Moses refers to Ham, he says, oh, by the way, Ham, he's the father of Canaan. He's going to say it again in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan. Now you go, why, why are we bringing one of the grandkids in here? Well, let's think about when this was written. Genesis was probably written by Moses in the wilderness, maybe near the time that the nation of Israel is about to enter the promised land. They are about to go into the land of Canaan, and they are about to take the land of Canaan from the Canaanites, which seems so mean. It seems so like when, when Europeans came and took away the land of the Native Americans. It seems so, so wrong. But what we're going to find here is that the Canaanites were a very wicked people. And so God is, is preparing his children to understand that these are not innocent, poor little people that were taking away their stuff. And so with that in mind, as he introduces Canaan, we're going to see why. It says, these were the sons of Noah. From these, the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Literally in Hebrew, it says, Noah became a man of the earth. And we're like, oh, wasn't his father Lamech a, a farmer? Yes. Cool. He planted a vineyard. Great. And he drank of the wine. Uh-oh. Well, I want to be very careful here. When the Bible speaks of wine, it does not speak of wine in and of itself as being evil. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God has made wine to make man's heart glad. Okay? So I know there are some people who think the wine in the Bible was non-alcoholic. Our Lord would never turn water into wine. Wine in the scripture is a symbol of blessing. In the book of Joel, God says, in the last days the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Wine is not evil in and of itself. It is drunkenness that is evil. And what we're going to find in this passage is we're going to find that God's real concern is not with drinking a little bit of wine. It's with moral abandonment. And so what we find then is Noah made a farm and he planted wine, but then he became drunk. Now I'm going to tell you this. That is sin. The Bible does not fudge on this. Drunkenness is sin. It's listed in Galatians chapter 5 as a deed of the flesh. It's not an illness. It's a sin. Okay, to get drunk. Now again, then you go, well, how do I know when I'm drunk? I'm just having a buzz. Well, that's where the idea of being a Christian is not to get as close to the edge as you can. So, and what we're going to find that this act of drunkenness on, on, on Noah's part was a form of moral abandonment, which only led to more moral abandonment. And we need to be very cautious and careful because alcohol and moral abandonment are very closely connected. So I don't want to impose on the scriptures what the Bible doesn't teach. I know some people go, all alcohol's wrong. 
But drunkenness is destructive. It's sin. And if you can't handle alcohol in a very moderate way, then repent and forsake it. No one dies without alcohol. But notice what happens. The text says, then Noah uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, normally, one might think, well, well, I do that before I get in bed. You know, I, I put on my pajamas. But there's, there's, there's something negative about this uncovering of himself as I read it. Now, different commentaries disagree here. The phrase uncover yourself, as you read in the Old Testament, had to do with shame. Sometimes God said, I'll uncover your nakedness. And the phrase was also used, you were never to uncover someone else's nakedness other than your spouse. In fact, Leviticus 17, verse after verse says, do not uncover your sister's nakedness. Do not uncover your father's nakedness. So, so somehow there seems to be some moral something. I don't know what it was that Noah did. But, he, but you know, I, I think it's more than just he, he just passed out naked, right? That perhaps in his loss of his faculties, which often happens when people are drunk, he did something inappropriate. Now, you might not agree with that, but nevertheless, let's keep reading. Then the text says in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, that verse seems pretty innocuous, right? Big deal, you know? My dad got out of the shower, I saw him naked. Oop, I just ran out, hey, and I told my brothers. But, but what we're gonna find here is there, there, there had to be something more than simply he, he accidentally saw it. Because Noah is going to pronounce a curse on this. And so it's really interesting. Commentaries go all over on this. Some of them say there was some sort of sexual perverted act. One commentary even said he castrated his father. Others say he was, he was to see the nakedness. See, see in, the, in the Eastern culture, this was a very shameful thing. To, to, to take off your clothes and to be seen naked was terribly shameful. And by the way, we might learn something from that. But, but, but the point is, whatever he did, whether he, he, he simply was wanting to have some way of embarrassing his father or asserting himself over his father by holding this against him, I saw you naked, which would have been a great form of shame, or if he did something perverted, whatever it was, it was wrong. And he had hoped that in the company of his brothers, they would share in that moral abandonment. So he goes out and he tells his brothers, but look what the text says, but... Verse 23, Shem and Japheth, see, they had some moral standards. They were appalled by this. They didn't join with him, but instead they took a garment. They laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked backward. And notice how careful Moses is to show their discretion. They covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24, when Noah awoke, awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, again, that, that leaves all kinds of questions. How did he know? Did they tell him? Was there some evidence? Something shameful happened. And when Noah becomes aware of this, he doesn't just go, darn. But he pronounces a curse, and I want us to think about this. Verse 25, so he said... Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Now, first of all, you go, no, wait, well, hang on here. Canaan didn't do this. Your son Ham did. Why are you pronouncing a curse on your grandson? 
some commentators suggest it's possible that, that Canaan participated in this act. That's possible. But I think the bigger picture here is that God is, is showing us that the Canaanites are a cursed people because of their sexual perversion. Because as you continue to read the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 15 and God says to, to Abram, I'm going to give you the promised land, but the iniquity of these people, which he calls the Amorites there, it's not yet full. So by the time the children of Israel are on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to go in and, and annihilate the Canaanites, we learn from extra-biblical history, but also from the book of Leviticus, what a perverted, wicked, corrupt, and sexually promiscuous people they are. And that this was not just, oh, these poor innocent victims. God is reminding us of the consequences of a failure to restrain ourselves morally, of the consequences of moral abandonment. But then you would expect that these good boys who didn't do this, that God would say, cursed be Shem, or cursed be Ham and Canaan, blessed be Shem. But he doesn't say that. Notice what he says instead. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. See, it's always about the Lord. It's not about us. It's not about, hey, I'm blessed because I'm good. We're blessed because we have a great Savior. We have a great Lord. And because of the Lord... Jesus Christ, we ourselves are blessed with every spiritual blessing. But I do want to touch on one thing briefly here. That wicked men have taken this passage and tried to twist and corrupt it to validate the slavery of Africans in our culture. I'm going to just say that right up front. That is, that is a twisted perversion of the Bible. And part of the reason they do that is they go, well, look, the Hamites came from, were, were, were in northern Africa, so this is why black people were created to be slaves. That's blasphemous. I think that's absolutely wrong. If you, if you look where the three sons, Ham wasn't the only one in Africa. So, oh, is it only part of the African race? Okay, so that's a twisted and perversion attempt to cover up a moral blemish in American culture. Inexcusable what white people did to black people in our culture. Nevertheless, God did pronounce on the Canaanite people because of their moral degradation that they would be subservient to the Jewish people. And so God says, may God enlarge Japheth. May Japheth's relationship to Shem bring him blessing. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. You go, okay, okay. I just read a chapter from the Bible. I saw a commissioning, a covenant, and a curse. But what we're learning to do is that each time we read the Bible, we ought to, before we close it down, stop and pause. And remember, all Scripture was written for us as believers. And it should affect our beliefs and our behavior. It should always point us to Christ. And one of the things we're trying to model and teach you how to do is to think through relevant applications so that we're not simply filling our head with information but that we're reading the bible under the influence of the holy spirit to try to experience gospel transformation so i want to suggest that there's four things that we can take away from this chapter number one as a christian you and i need to thank god for the role of government okay there are many things about the government 
I don't like what they're doing. Could I find, do I have anybody else with me on that? I hear two amens, I get three. Yeah, there are many things about the government that I don't like what they're doing, but I like the idea of government. And I do thank God that if somebody's breaking into my house, that I can call someone up who has been appointed by God to protect me. So we need to thank God for the government. And we need to understand that government was God's institution for the preservation of society. But secondly, as a Christian, you and I need to understand that we have a role to pray for our government. If American Christians spent half the time praying for their government that they do complaining about the government, I think things would be very different in our country. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, I urge you first of all to pray for your kings and all who are in authority. Well, what do we pray? Oh, like President Obama, right? Nonsense. You pray, this is what Paul said, pray that we as Christians under the government may be able to lead tranquil and peaceful lives in godliness and dignity. We need to pray that we do not fall under the wrath of the government. I know that seems, oh, are you kidding me? This is a Christian nation. Do you think it won't be long before it will be illegal to denounce homosexuality? So we pray for our government, and we take advantage. It is a blessing and a privilege that we're sitting here right now not wondering if someone's going to come in with a gun and shoot us. And that could change. So we pray that as a government, we will be free from their wrath, but not so we can pursue our pleasures, Paul says, so that we might lead godly lives. See, we have an opportunity to make hay while the sun is shining, we have the freedom and privilege to talk openly about the gospel. But if we're not living godly in support of our prayers, we fall into what Tozer said. The reason there's not more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. So it's not just, Lord, fix the stupid government. It's, Lord, awaken the church that Christians live godly lives. And thirdly, as we pray for our government, we're also called to submit to it. It's just nonsense. People, I'm not paying taxes. They do stupid stuff. That's not biblical. It is biblical to submit to your government, to pay your taxes, to do what's right, to be a good citizen, to advance the gospel. And this whole idea of, we're all God, guns, and guts. Let them come after me. I'll shoot them all dead. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're only to disobey the government when the government asks us to disobey God. Acts 5.29 says, we must obey God rather than men. So yeah, I don't like the fact that government was created solely to protect us, and now they've got their hand in education and, and welfare and, and, and insurance. But you know what? I don't think Paul liked the fact that, that the Roman government was headed by wicked emperors who oppressed Christianity, but God says, submit to your government, pray for them, and be a testimony. We're here for the good of our nation. And so we thank God for government. Secondly, we thank God for government, but you and I need to understand the damage of moral abandonment. And I want to say a couple of things about this. Drunkenness and sexual impropriety is rampant in our culture. And it does not stop in the Christian community. And so if you have a substance abuse problem, if you're getting drunk, if you are abusing um, even prescription painkillers and so forth. This is not a gray area. That's sin. And God wants to free you from that. And we're not here to judge you and say, what's the matter with you? But we're here to, the church is a hospital. 
but particularly when it comes to sexual sin. We are living in a culture right now where people are destroyed by sexual sin. I don't know if you saw the news the other day, the, the, the girl who, who claims that Jameson Winston, the, 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 the football player from Florida, just put out a book, and, and the statistics right now about how many girls are raped on college campuses and how many girls are sexually abused right now. We're living in a broken culture. How many of our young people are fornicating? How many of our Christian married couples are having adulterous affairs? How many men are pervertedly looking at porn and masturbating? How many people are in, engaging in, in, in same-sex attraction and incest? And on and on it goes. You go, man... But here's the hope of the gospel, that in the midst of a morally abandoned culture, Jesus reigns, and Jesus lives to heal. Jesus' sexual sin, all of us who have been damaged by it or participated in it know that it comes with a life of consequences. You reap what you sow. But what a glory it is to know that the Lord Jesus said, if you come to me, I will set you free indeed. And so some of you this morning may be here living under the tremendous scourge of having been sexually abused and you've never told anyone and you're living in such private pain and you're just hoping if I keep forgetting about it, it'll go away and it won't go away. Jesus is there to help you, but he helps you through others. You need to, to, to talk to someone. Find a Christian you can trust and begin the process of healing. This is the glory of the gospel that there's no Humpty Dumpties with Christ. The king's horses, men can't put people together, but Jesus can. And so whatever it is, if, if, if you have some blemish in your past and Satan's just beating you down that you could never change or you should be ashamed or you're not a virgin, where's the gospel in that? The blood of Jesus was shed for broken sinners who have morally given themselves over. But the condition is to come in repentance. Jesus always said, come to me. Come in your brokenness. So if you're here and you're struggling with same-sex attraction or anything, any manner of sexual temptation, none of us are free from that. I'm not up here going, holy me, all I think about is Sunday school. I never think wrongly about sex. We're sinners. But the Holy Spirit indwells us so that we can walk in the Spirit and not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so whether you've been sinned against or whether you've been morally abandoning yourself and sinning, the solution is always Christ. And coming and finding his love, finding his forgiveness, finding his promises of being made new, of made whole. And this is a process. People who fall into moral abandonment don't get that way overnight. You don't get healed overnight, but you get forgiven in an instant. And then you learn how to forgive those who've sinned against you through Christ. And so let's pray that as a church, we don't have our head in the sand and go, no, we don't have any alcohol or drug or sex problems in our church. Of course we do. Top three reasons for divorce in America right now are communication, money, and sex problems. The church is a hospital, and we're here to heal and to help. We don't condone sin, but we don't stone those who are broken and fallen. We're in this together, and that's part of discipleship is learning to trust and share our lives, and pray together, and repent together, and find healing, and counseling, and biblical victory through the Holy Spirit. Please say amen for that, and please pray for that in our church. I've had people say, oh, everybody else seems so happy, and has it all together. 
Don't let these smiling faces fool you. Third, quickly, we thank God for government. We pray and understand moral abandonment. Third, we prepare ourselves for coming judgment. See, God didn't say, I'll never again destroy the earth. He said, I'll never again destroy it with a flood. It almost seems a little like, because he tells us he is going to destroy the earth with a fire. The Bible's real clear on that. You don't even have to wonder what's going to happen in the future. The Bible already says what's going to happen. This entire universe will melt with an intense fire. You can read about it in 2 Peter 3. And the only reason it hasn't happened yet is 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this. God's not slow about his promise, but he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. But you and I need to prepare ourselves, first of all, personally for coming judgment. Jesus is coming again. And just like in his day, he said, many were drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the ark was shut, and then it was too late. It's the same thing's going to happen when Christ comes back. There's going to be a whole lot of people going, if only. So if you're here today and you have not repented and come to Christ, maybe what will people think of me? Don't worry about what people think about you. The only thing that matters is what does Jesus think of you? And I can tell you this, he loved you and he died for you and he wants to be your Lord and Savior. But he's not looking for any more secret service agents or people who don't want to turn from their sin. If you love your moral abandonment, you're not ready to be a Christian until you're ready to repent. Many people are going to hell not because they haven't seen John 3.16 in the end zone. They haven't followed John 3.20. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to repent. But if you want to repent and come, Jesus accepts you. You don't have to change your life. Just be willing. Turn your life over to him and trust him. Don't leave today without doing that. And then as we prepare for coming judgment, we've got family and friends. Remember what we said last week? Pray with all your heart. Never give up. If nothing else, Lord, bring my family on this ark. And you and I who know what it feels like to have a kid away from the Lord, you're only as happy as your saddest kid. You're only as able to fully rejoice when all your kids are on the ark. John said, I have no greater joy. But that doesn't mean you can't live with that tension now when one of your kids is away from the Lord. Because that's how we learn to depend on God. That's how we learn perseverance and prayer. And we learn to be honest about our failures and don't let Satan beat you up and say, it's all your fault and your kid's going to hell, it's because of you. But don't give up hope that in a moment Christ can call that child back and just be steady and faithful and humble and keep praying. But finally, we talked about covenants. Let's go out of here and remember, we have the new covenant. I'm happy for rainbows, but I'm way more happy about the blood, aren't you? And so as you leave this morning, Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant, which is for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. There might not be a whole lot going on good in your life right now, but shoot, if you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven. You willing to give that one up? Jesus says, you want to gain the whole world, but you'll lose your soul. So as Christians, we have something to be hopeful in. We're partakers of the new covenant. The, promises, or the problem is we think of God's blessings as material. I wish God would bless me with a new car. The biggest blessings that we have are spiritual blessings. Scrooge McDuck knew how to celebrate earthly blessings. He'd jump in his coins and he would relish them. As Christians, we need to learn how to celebrate eternal spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. 
We are partakers of the new covenant. So this week I want you to read Hebrews chapter 8. The author says, we have a better covenant with better promises that's permanent. And God says to you and me, when Satan says, this person's so terrible, God says to you and me, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. They're all washed away. You're my child, I love you. You are forgiven. You're a participant in my new covenant. And so as we go this morning, don't go out beating yourself up in shame. Come in contrition. The Bible says a broken and contrite heart, God does not despise. Come in faith and celebrate the words of the Lord Jesus. This is my blood that was shed for you. This is my covenant, which is for you. Yeah, things might not be going well with your health, your job, your family, but you are a partaker of the new covenant. And for that, we'll be eternally grateful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for Jesus. This world's a mess, but Jesus reigns. And we're all in in recovery from sin. Thank you so much, Lord, for your patience with us. And thank you so much, Lord, that the gospel changes lives. And we pray that as we go forth tonight, this afternoon, we will remember the blessing of the new covenant. And we will remember Jesus. And we're so thankful, Lord. And we pray that you'll bring healing, that that the God of Shem will be our God and that you will bless your children, and that we will celebrate our spiritual blessings, and that we will pray and persevere until Jesus returns. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. If you would like to learn more about how to become a Christian, we're here to talk to you. Be sure to encourage each other. God bless you, and have a great day.